The book taking center stage this week has a lot going for it, but let's start with one very unique and probably quite obvious distinction. It has the longest title of any book ever featured on SSR. Episode 164 is all about E.L. Koningsberg's Jennifer, Hectate, Macbeth, William McKinley, and me, Elizabeth. Longest title ever. But let's be real. E.L. Koningsberg is a kid-lit superstar, and she can do anything she wants. I'm here for it. In Jennifer, Hectate, Macbeth, William McKinley, and me, Elizabeth, which was published in 1967, we meet Elizabeth, who is struggling to fit in as a fifth grader. When she meets self-proclaimed witch Jennifer and is offered the opportunity to train as an apprentice witch, it looks like her days of loneliness are behind her. But are they? Elizabeth's friendship with Jennifer has some pretty weird power dynamics, and as Elizabeth gets in deeper with her new pal, her life gets kind of complicated. The book explores those complications, as well as everything that Elizabeth and Jennifer gain from their relationship. In the episode you're about to hear, my guest and I discuss toxic friendships, the way the author approached race in the late 60s, the extent to which Jennifer others herself, and the awkwardness of fifth grade. We get into extensive conversation about the not-like-other-girls trope and the being-mean-to-the-mean-girl-is-totally-fine trope, which you know I have strong feelings about. We, of course, chat about E.L. Koningsberg's fantastic writing and a very fun fact that I discovered about her Newbery wins. It's a little bit of everything, and I know you're going to enjoy it. My guest this week is Trish Dollar, a writer, traveler, and dog rescuer, but not necessarily in that order, she says. Trish is the author of Float Plan, her women's fiction debut, and The Sweet Spot. She has also written several YA novels, including the critically acclaimed Something Like Normal. When she's not writing, Trish loves sailing, camping, and avoiding housework. She lives in southwest Florida with an opinionated herding dog and an ex-pirate. Find Trish on Twitter and Instagram at Trish Dollar. Thank you, Trish, for joining us for this episode. And thanks, as always, to each and every one of you for your ongoing support and love for the podcast. Whether you just stumbled upon the show recently or have been listening for years, I appreciate you more than I can say. I launched SSR as a passion project back in 2018, and I am so humbled by what it's grown into since then. You all have helped make it happen. If you are new to the SSR community, please make sure you're following along on social media so you can stay up to date on all of the happenings and get to know me a little better too. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. You can also read along with the SSR Book Club for free. In October, our amazing facilitators will lead conversations about Nevermore and the first book in the Gallagher Girl series. You don't want to miss it. Get all the details and sign up at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub. If you really love SSR and want to show your support, I would encourage you to seriously consider joining the Patreon community. The contributions I get from SSR's patrons, as little as a dollar per month, really do help keep me going as the podcast and community continue to grow and require more of my time. I'm a one-woman show over here. There are tons of cool exclusive perks for patrons up for grabs, and you can learn all about them at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thank you so much for giving it some thought, and thanks to all the amazing patrons out there listening to this episode. This episode of SSR is brought to you by Kensington's newest title from Sherry Lawrenston, Breaking Badger. Breaking Badger is the fourth book in the Honey Badger Chronicles series. 
My hometown paper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, had this to say about the series. Shelley Lawrenston's shifter books are full of oddball characters, strong females with attitude, and dialogue that can have you laughing out loud. Many of my favorite books have those three elements, so that's going to be a check, check, check for me. Why not curl up with Breaking Badger this fall? You can find Breaking Badger by Shelley Lawrenston wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. You can find out more about how to support independent bookstores when you shop for audiobooks at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. As you may already know, the audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Trish. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So I feel like I'm going to struggle with this title throughout the episode. Oh, me too. Because it's long. Oh, me too. It's long. <laughs> we have a challenging author name here. And I, I have been on this podcast before trying to say this author's name gracefully. It generally is a challenge. She loves a long title, E.L. Koningsberg. It's one of her things from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler is a mouthful, but this one is even more of a mouthful. The book we are talking about today is called, and I feel like I have to take a deep breath before I even wind <laughs> up to say it. Oh, okay. Jennifer, Hectate, Macbeth, William McKinley, and me, Elizabeth, Trish, as an author, as somebody who has had to come up with titles for books before. What are your thoughts on this title? It's a lot. I can't ever remember it. Like, I'm glad you said it because I wouldn't even be able to refer back to it because it's too much. But I think it goes along with who E.L. Konigsberg is as a writer. So I'm going to give her a pass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who am I really to, to criticize her because she is a kid lit queen and just generally a wonderful author. But this book, like every time I was making notes about it for the podcast in this whole process of like setting up this episode, all the things that I have to do to get this episode out in the world. I have had to have the book in front of me because I don't even trust like <laughs> Google when I'm typing right. the book. I don't even trust the internet to give me the exact right pairing of the words in this title. So it is a mouthful. It's the witch book. I've, it is I've the witch book. I've it to the witch book in my brain. Okay. So we'll <laughs> go with that throughout the episode. And I have to say like this book sort of reminded me that I need to get all of my Shakespeare back in order because I remember very little Shakespeare from the limited experience I had with it in high school. And uh, yeah, it, it made me feel like I need to get a serious refresher on that because much of the, even the title itself is steeped in Shakespeare. Right. And Jennifer knows more about Shakespeare than me. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> most of my uh, real Shakespeare knowledge comes from, I don't know if you know the show Wishbone. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. So I remember like the Wishbone Romeo and Juliet. And I think he did a couple of the other Shakespeare stories. So yeah, I had like the Wishbone editions of Shakespeare books. So they had like, you know, the little the Jack Russell Terrier on the cover in like Shakespearean garb. So I think that maybe I need to go back and like read the source material (laughs) again at some point. But okay, I have some fun facts about this book. Okay. And there's one that I'm really excited to share. So the book was published in 1967. The same year that from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler came out. Wow. Right. So E.L. Koningsberg submitted both manuscripts to the same editor, and the editor accepted both of them. Wow. Can you imagine? No, I can't even imagine that. That would be the dream. <laughs> I know. The dream. So this book, The Witch Book, as we're calling it, came out first in 1967. From the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler came out later the same year. And then here's where it gets really interesting. In 1968, this book, The Witch Book, won a Newbery Honor. And from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler won the Newbery Medal in the same year. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's wild. Wow. Yeah, she's the only author to ever have that distinction, to win both of those distinctions in the same award year. That's crazy and cool. So cool. And and I'm in awe. That's amazing. I know. Good for her. I know. She deserves every little piece of every acclaim that she's ever gotten, but this was especially interesting to me. So let's get back to the beginning of the book. Like, did you read this book when you were growing up? Why did you want to read it for this podcast? So I did not read it. I don't know why. I was literally born in the year this book was published. So it should have been in my in my realm of, of books as a kid, but it wasn't. And I don't know why. Like I didn't even hear of this author until I was a bookseller and kids came in and read the mixed up files all the time. And this was not a book on the shelves in, in my bookstore when I was working as a bookseller. So it, I didn't even hear of it. But when I got the list of books, I'm like, that's a really long and interesting title. And I want to read that one. So I did not read it as a kid. And I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't get to read it as a kid because it's, it's marvelous. It's a marvelous book. So the title did its job. Yes. Even in 2021, and that it brought you right in and you wanted to find out what it was all about. I will note that we have discussed two other E.L. Koningsberg books on the podcast. Listeners, I will link to those episodes in the show notes for this episode. Very early on, we talked about, of course, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I want to say that was like the fifth book we ever covered on the show back in 2018. And then more recently, we did The View from Saturday, which is one of my personal favorites. So this will be our third E.L. Koningsberg episode. I don't know that I read this when I was a kid. If so, I clearly don't remember it, but it's very short. So when it came in the mail, I was like, oh, this will be a fun little snack to read before I record with Trish. And um, I generally really enjoyed it. But like, let's talk about your first impression. Once you started reading it, we meet our lovely, sweet, funny, spunky narrator, Elizabeth. What were your thoughts about her? Did you connect with her? I did. I loved her. I loved her immediately. I think the thing that I had to back up though, was the fact that it was written for kids. So I'm reading this and I'm like, why is she speaking like a child? And then I went, oh wait, she is a child. (laughs) But she was delightful. Like she was such a cute little thing. And I don't know, I just did. I just loved her and I wanted the best for her immediately. You know, like I felt sorry for her immediately because it was clear that she was a little, a lonely little kid. And I think that she, I think probably one of the reasons that I, I identified with her very quickly is because I was an only child when I was little and 
I, I was lonely a lot. And so Elizabeth and I would have been friends <laughs> immediately. So you wanted to like rescue her from her loneliness in this story and just be her pal. Definitely. Definitely. So she's in fifth grade, which I think is sort of a, an awkward stage anyway for most people. Like, I don't I don't know what you remember about that time in your life, but it's like you're too old to really be a kid or you don't want to be seen as a kid anymore. Mm -hmm. But you also aren't old enough to be a teenager or even really like a tween. And you also don't really want any of the responsibility or accountability <laughs> that comes with being a teen or a tween. And a lot of those realities are a little bit scary and intimidating when you're in fifth grade. So it's a very confusing time. And I think that's why it sometimes makes for like the perfect age group for middle grade books because it's just complicated and complication breeds a lot of great fodder for writing of course definitely definitely and and i when i when i first looked at the questions that you had provided me i didn't dig very deep like suddenly like you're bringing out all of these memories of my childhood so my fifth grade too i think fifth grade is a year or two where girls start i don't want to say they they start clicking up but they do sort of like all of those things that you were just a kid before that suddenly you're more like a boy and a girl in very binary terms. But, you know, girls start doing more girly things. And if you're not one of those girls, you suddenly find yourself on the outside, very much like Elizabeth did with the other girls. And so, like, I remember that time I was very kind of tomboyish and in fifth grade, I have very vivid memories of being in fifth grade and feeling really much on the outside. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough time. And I think complicating that tough time for Elizabeth is that there's clearly some like socioeconomic stuff in the mix in her life. Mm -hmm. And the author provides us with a bunch of hints and context clues that point to this. So first of all, she's moved to this town and she's moved into an apartment building. And the author makes it very clear that most of the people in this town live in houses. Like that's how Elizabeth is perceiving where she lives. It's a suburb of New York City. All of the dads, of course, only the dads, commute into the city <laughs> every day. It's 1967, everyone. Um, all the dads are going to work in New York City every day. I think with that comes certain connotations of wealth. Mm -hmm. It certainly does today. But then, you know, there's this like one sort of random apartment building near the train station, and that's where Elizabeth lives. We also get some hints in terms of what she's wearing in the first scene. It's Halloween, and she's walking to school in a pilgrim costume, which like, Side note, why are all of these kids at school dressed as pilgrims? I wondered that myself. The pilgrim was like the most popular costume of the year. I don't remember ever seeing anybody dressed as a pilgrim. As a pilgrim. No. And that's, of course, <laughs> setting aside like the problematic connotations of dressing as a pilgrim and celebrating that, that I'm sure people have very different opinions about today than they sure. did in 1967 when this book was written. But like, it seemed as though more than half of the class was dressed up like a pilgrim for Halloween. And this was not something that I experienced. No, nor did I. I. I made me wonder if like, maybe they had like a Thanksgiving play coming up and they just all wore the costume because they had <laughs> it already. It. I don't know. It was a, that was weird. That stood out to me as kind of strange. 
Yeah, they all had the costume left over from the year before. But Elizabeth's pilgrim costume is too short. And she she has this one moment where she talks about how like she's growing every year, but not so much that her mother feels like she needs new things. So they just kind of are like riding it out with the clothes that she already has. And the outfit is itchy. And I think there's another outfit or two later on that's a hand-me-down. Oh, the dress she wears to Cynthia's birthday party also doesn't right. quite fit her and she's uncomfortable. So we get these markers throughout that in addition to sort of the standard like fifth grade awkwardness, Elizabeth is feeling out of it because she is perhaps at a lower socioeconomic level than a lot of her classmates. Right. But she does make a friend on <laughs> Halloween on her way to school. And guess what she's dressed like? A pilgrim. A pilgrim. <laughs> Only she's, a good, she's dressed like a good pilgrim. <laughs> yeah, she has a better costume, but she's also a witch. This is Jennifer of the Jennifer Hectate Macbeth, William McKinley and me, Elizabeth title. And she is also new to town. What were your first impressions of Jennifer when you met her in the book? You know, I was kind of like wondering, I felt a lot like Elizabeth. I'm like, who is this girl? Is she really a witch? I mean, I was ready to suspend right. belief that this girl was a witch because Elizabeth believed she was a witch. But I, but I did notice that she was a little bossy. She's a little bit bossy. Yes, the power dynamic in their relationship is something that I have a lot of thoughts on and something that I want to get into. And I pulled out a lot of quotes from the book that I think really illustrate the weirdness that's happening here. But something else that I wanted to note, and it's it's actually something that I wasn't aware of until I started doing a bit more research before we talked today. Jennifer is Black. Yes, it was a very quick little note. I missed it. Is it actually in the text? Like, does yes. it is? Okay. It is in the text, but when I hit it, and like that's that literally changed the read for me. And there were I noticed that there weren't really any cultural markers that we might see in 2021. So that was it was a little jarring that I'm like, wait, wait, this is information we maybe should have had sooner. You know, maybe there should have been more information in terms of like her description. But then again, maybe not. Like I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm like navigating this, you know, it, from 2020 going. Do we need that information to be right there? I don't know. Like, it was really, really tricky for me. Yeah, I mean, I totally missed it. Like, I must have just skimmed over that part. I was so wrapped up in her being a witch and her, like, being a potentially toxic friend for Elizabeth that I just missed that. And then I actually went through and I looked at the illustrations again. And I was like, oh, this illustrator is clearly trying to show, even in these, like, sketches, that Jennifer is Black and Elizabeth is white. (laughs) Missed it. Missed the whole thing. I agree with you that as I was reflecting on it, I wasn't sure if I felt like the author, and again, we're talking about Yale Koningsberg here. She literally won two Newberries in one year. So like, I think she can handle our questioning of this, of this concept. You know, I think there's this idea of colorblindness that is very dicey and not something that I think is necessarily the correct or most productive approach, especially when talking to kids about race as we see it in 2021. But I wonder if in 1967, E.L. Koningsberg thought that this was like the most progressive route. And E.L. Koningsberg, like from everything that I've read about her, from everything that I've read by her, she is a very progressive author, very progressive ideas. And so I like to think that maybe in 1967 or 1966, when she was writing this, she was like, well, like the most forward thinking way of handling this is to just not really make a big deal. Whereas I think in 2021, an author would lean into it a little bit more. Well, and that's, I, that's what I got to thinking. I mean, she wrote the book and it published in the middle of the civil rights era. Right. And so when you're thinking about that, 
to put a, a character of color in there and not make a big deal about it is probably the point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I can't read her. I don't know her author intent, but I mean, in a time when things were so charged, so racially charged in the United States to just drop a character in there and just make her a part of the story without highlighting her blackness might have been the point. I don't know that if we could have maybe used more about Jennifer's life to help white kids in 1967 understand. But then again, maybe that's not what the story, the intent of her story was. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think for me, it just brings up like some, like there are other questions. Yes. It's like, you know, Jennifer is sort of an outcast in this school. And because I was not really aware when I was reading it of the fact that she's black, I wasn't thinking that that had anything to do with it. But now I'm, I'm reflecting on it and I'm like, well, I think maybe we're meant to believe that she's the only black student mm -hmm. or the only student of color at the school. So how much am I now meant to read racism into the fact that the other students at school aren't really welcoming her. Right. Like that seems like a pretty important piece of the puzzle or even the fact that like, you know, she's talking about being a witch. Like, I think there's a lot there. I, and I, I guess that. I just feel so like, I don't know if you want to dive yeah. into that now or. Okay. Let's do it. So Let's dive in. I was thinking about the fact that when you were a black, you were the only child. And I mean, I, I can only, I'm only speculating because I'm white. But I think making yourself a witch is othering yourself in a way that's potentially less painful than dealing with the fact that maybe your classmates are racist against you because you're the only black kid in the class. When I was a kid and this, she, she wasn't black, but there was a girl in my, in my grade who was, I mean, we all thought she was kind of weird. And so in order to lean, she sort of leaned into the weirdness. So instead of us laughing at her, we were laughing with her. She outrageous things like put ketchup and mustard on her chocolate chip cookie and be like, mm, this is so delicious. And, you know, I think that she was protecting herself from us. And so I think that that's where maybe we see Jennifer, she's wrapped herself in her witchiness in order to protect herself from the racism. I think that's a great point. And I'll echo what you said. I'll, I am also a white woman, as most listeners know at this point. So we, of course, want to like couch all of this by saying we are two white women having this conversation. But I think that that's an excellent point. And um, just something to think about, listeners. Like we talk about these books that have been written 40, 50, 60 years ago sometimes. And luckily, sometimes on the podcast, we also get the chance to talk about books that are more recent. We have New Reads November coming up. I'm really excited to dig into newer YA with you. But it's just, it's interesting to think about like how race was used or sometimes not used as sometimes a tool in different ways at these different points in history. And um, I don't know, I just, I think the fact that Jennifer's race is not really a matter of discussion at all in this book. Like there are parts of that that I really like. It was sort of refreshing, like you said, especially at this time when we were smack in the middle of the civil rights movement. But there were parts of it that just gave me a lot of questions. So I wanted to make sure we touched on that, especially because it was something that I was so unaware of as I was reading. And then when I discovered it after the fact, I was like, oh, I think we need to talk about this. Definitely. Sure. I'm glad it wasn't just me that had that experience, though, because I was like, did I not read the book? I'm pretty sure I read the book. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I did. It was very subtle. It was just like, Jennifer is black. It was like it was the sentence. And I was like, that's it? Yeah. So... Yeah. So the other character that I would love to talk about before we really start getting into the adventures that Jennifer and Elizabeth have and their weird dynamic is Cynthia. 
And Cynthia is like the popular girl at school. And I pulled out a quote about her that I wanted to share because I think this kind of captures the kind of character that we're dealing with. Elizabeth writes or says or thinks, before I tell you what I saw her do, I have to tell you about Cynthia. Every grown-up in the whole U.S. of A. thinks that Cynthia is perfect. She is pretty and neat and smart. I guess that makes perfect to almost any grown-up. Since she lives in the same apartment house as we do, and since my mother is a grown-up, and since my mother thinks that she is perfect, my mother has tried hard to have us become friends since we first moved to town. It didn't take me long to discover that Cynthia was not perfect. The word for what <laughs> Cynthia was was mean. Okay. So, listeners know that one of my least favorite tropes in Kidlet is, and I don't really have like a more succinct way to capture it than this, but here it is. Okay. It's okay to be mean to somebody if that person is the mean girl already. Yeah. We have a lot of that happening in this book. So, here are a couple of things that Elizabeth does to Cynthia because Cynthia is the mean girl. And Cynthia has a friend named Dolores who is also sometimes a victim of Elizabeth's prank. So Elizabeth does things like pushing all the buttons in the elevator when Cynthia and Dolores are going up in it. So like Elizabeth will get off the elevator at her lower floor. She sees that Cynthia and Dolores are going all the way upstairs and she just pushes all of the buttons so that she'll have to stop at every floor. She pulls down Cynthia's tutu during the Halloween parade. Well, no, Jennifer pulls down... Cynthia's tutu at the Halloween parade. But Elizabeth points at her and like makes a big scene about it so that everybody sees it. Um, she knocks Cynthia out in dodgeball in gym class. And then when she starts to develop her witchy powers, she thinks to herself over and over like right. trip and fall, trip and fall, trip and fall. And then Cynthia does in fact trip and fall. So right. I, I think I've made my case for why I don't like this trope. What are your thoughts about it? What did you think about Cynthia in general? I mean, she is, she does come across as a mean girl, but I, yeah, I agree. I don't think that being mean back is like, okay. And I also found the fact that Jennifer is a mean girl too. And <laughs> they're all kind of mean. And so it's like, why is, why is it okay that Jennifer is mean to Elizabeth, but it's not okay that Cynthia is mean to Elizabeth. That was the, that was one thing that I was like, I don't understand. I do understand. But at, at first I was like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Cynthia is mean and we're being mean back. But Jennifer is mean and we're doing everything she said. Yeah. And Elizabeth is kind of mean. Yeah. Like Elizabeth is being really mean to Cynthia. I guess I was having trouble. And I guess that there's, of course, like an argument to be made for Elizabeth has been, she's been like taunted by Cynthia for long enough that she's retaliating. Right. This is like, these are retaliatory yeah. acts of meanness. But I guess like I would argue that Cynthia is not that much meaner to Elizabeth than Elizabeth is to Cynthia. And to your point, she's certainly not that much meaner to Elizabeth than Jennifer. Jennifer is to Elizabeth. So I just was like so frustrated. Yeah, it was. It was a very frustrating thing. And, and I and I did have that moment where I'm like, I why is she retaliating against Cynthia, but literally doing everything Jennifer says? Yeah, I do think it's like a thing that happens when you're a kid, though. It's like you just decide, well, this person's mean. Like this girl is, po it, it be, there's also like the popularity element, though, right? Where it's like, I think sometimes I'm trying to think back on my own experience. Somebody being popular, if you are somebody who does not perceive themselves as popular, that is sort of just this extra like tick mark in your tally of the things that make them bad or the things that make them mean. Even if it's 
just because they're like friendly or like really involved or something like I, I don't know why this happens. I don't know if it's just like different kinds of pop culture that has just like predisposed us to get frustrated with people who are popular. But I don't know. I, I just think sometimes it's like that popularity like tips the scales. Right. If you're mean to like make you even worse. Right. Right. And and sometimes I wonder too, was Cynthia really as mean as Elizabeth perceives her? Or is she just more popular and has more friends and she's higher up in the socioeconomic stratus and has the ability to wear a tutu instead of a pilgrim costume and is able to have, you know, a, a fancy birthday party. And so all of these things could just be her jealousy manifesting itself into meanness, into a perception of meanness. Yeah. And also, I guess Elizabeth just hasn't been like welcomed by Cynthia. Right. And so she's just sad. Like maybe it's just her sadness coming out as frustration and quite frankly, aggression. Because if you're like kicking people and like throwing dodgeballs at them and trying to get them to fall, like that's aggressive. And so maybe it's just her loneliness manifesting as yeah aggression. But yeah, that's never my favorite kind of dynamic, especially among little girls. Like this is why I think like little girls grow up to be women who think that there's like not room for more than one or two women at a table is because like this is what we grow up reading. And so it always makes me sad when I see when I see relationships between young girls depicted this way in books. So I had to bring that up. I couldn't help myself. But let's let's talk more about Jennifer and Elizabeth. So they meet in the pilgrim costumes. They become friends. Jennifer explains to Elizabeth that she is a witch and she decides that Elizabeth can be her apprentice witch. And from there, a bit of hazing begins. I know hazing is a strong word, but that's really what it is. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have thought it that way until you used the word. But yes, she really does. She really does haze her a lot. Yeah, it's it's really sad. But I think, you know, Elizabeth has this, I think they both are a little bit desperate to be accepted. And they both sort of assume these roles that give them a chance to be accepted. Jennifer is accepted because Elizabeth sees her as like, magical and like authoritative and like she has knowledge of something that Elizabeth doesn't even understand. And Elizabeth gets to be accepted because Jennifer is like happy to sort of swoop her up and teach her everything that she knows. And so they both get this like new role that allows them to be comfortable with who they are. Right. So it's kind of a weird thing, but it is a weird dynamic. Jennifer's power dynamic is like, she has so much control and she, she's, so mean. So mean. So at first she's like making Elizabeth eat only certain foods every week. So if she wants to be a witch, she has to like do these different food challenges every single week. She can only eat raw eggs for a week. And then she also has to bring Jennifer a hard boiled egg every day for that week in order to like survive her apprenticeship for another week. And spoiler alert, at the end of the book, we find out that Jennifer's father is like a caretaker at some sort of like large estate house, I think close to where Elizabeth lives. And so I think, again, we have a socioeconomic hint there that maybe Jennifer also is not really very high on the socioeconomic ladder. And so when I finished the book, I was like, oh, I wonder if she was kind of engineering the challenge this way because she was hungry. Like maybe she really wanted a hard boiled egg every day. I didn't even think of that. But now that you bring it up, it's possible. It's likely she was hungry. And that's really smart to her credit. It really is. But at the same time, like forcing your friend to eat a raw onion and then wanting her to bring you something delicious is really kind of mean. 
And I mean, it's a test. It was a test of friendship. But at the same time, Elizabeth didn't know that. Like, in all in her mind, she's thinking that she's training to be a witch. Yeah. And they also, like, don't really have enough of a basis of a friendship for Elizabeth to really like be tested. I don't think if that makes sense. Like, I feel like they met one day and then the next day, Elizabeth is just trying to prove herself worthy of becoming a witch. But it's under the auspices of like, well, if we're friends, you'll do this. But they're not friends. So, but, but Elizabeth was also so desperate for a friend that she yeah. wanted to do all of those things because she thought if she became a witch, then she would be friends. They would be friends. And they would have this thing in common. Yeah. So every week she eats a different special food. And then she also has to leave some other kind of special food for Jennifer by this tree where they meet and exchange things. So that's like the first phase. She gets through that. I noted a couple of quotes that I think point to this weird dynamic that we're talking about. So maybe I'll read each of them and then you can let me know how you feel about them. (laughs) Since we both seem to have strong feelings about this. (laughs) Okay, so the first one is, some days I got really mad at Jennifer. Some days I really didn't like being her apprentice, but I was always a little bit worried that she would choose another apprentice. Okay. Sad. It is sad. So she's clearly very, very lonely and she was, any friend is better than no friend. That's kind of the message that she's sending to herself, that any friend is better than no friend at all. She's very insecure. Okay, next one. After all, she had chosen me because she knew that I had all the makings of a fine witch. That must have been why she chose me, and I knew that she was a fine witch already. When you understand something that important about someone, you don't have to know a lot of other stuff. So they're not getting to know each other at all as friends. No, not really. Yeah. And I think, again, it's it all speaks to their, both of their desperation. They're both very desperate to have someone. And, you know, Jennifer seems to think that forcing this girl into her life is the way to make a friend. And Elizabeth is willing to go along with it because she wants to be someone's friend, even if it means doing, you know, eating raw onions and being bossed around. Yeah. Okay. Here's the last one that I'll read. I wanted to be a witch so bad that I would eat it. There was a lot I didn't find out about Jennifer and a lot I gave into, but it was worth it. Being an apprentice witch was worth it. Besides, I thought how nice it would be to fly. Yeah. So she's believing it. I mean, she's believing it. And and I think that she she probably thinks that when she's a witch, she will suddenly be special and she will be noticeable in a way that she's not special or noticeable now mm-hmm. that she thinks. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that she's special and noticeable. And if Cynthia would give her a chance, she would see that. Yeah. There's also this weird thing happening throughout the book where Elizabeth becomes very protective over Jennifer. Like she's really happy about the fact that Jennifer isn't really putting herself out there with other kids because she wants to keep Jennifer all to herself. She is happy that the other kids at her school like aren't quite ready to discover how cool and like unique Jennifer is because Elizabeth doesn't want others to like get in on the secret. And that I feel like is so real. Like that's something that I think a lot of adults can think back on their own childhoods and be like, Oh yeah, I remember that one friend who I was really scared to have to share with anybody else. Yeah. I had one of those friends. Yeah. So I get it. But I mean, on the flip side, then you have Jennifer who doesn't want Elizabeth to have any fun without her. So she literally makes her life miserable. So, you know, yeah. So that she won't have fun with anyone but her. 
Yeah, it's really, it's pretty twisted. So I, I think this is a great segue to these taboos that Jennifer comes up with, because once she promotes Elizabeth from Apprentice Witch to Journeyman Witch, she gives her these 13 rules that she has to live by if she wants to then be like promoted to an actual witch. So she's not allowed to lie on a pillow when she sleeps. Okay. Um, she's not allowed to cut her hair, which Elizabeth knows is not going to fly with her mom. She is not allowed to eat after 7.30 at night. She can't make a call on the telephone, although she is allowed to answer the phone. She can't wear shoes in the house on Sundays. She's not allowed to use red ink. She can't light a match. She can't touch straight pins or needles. She can't dance at a wedding. Like the specificity of these <laughs> is hilarious. She's not allowed to get into bed without walking around it three times, which Elizabeth notes is going to be a challenge because her bed is pushed like up into a corner. She's not allowed to walk on the same side of the street as a hospital. She's not allowed to sing before breakfast and she's not allowed to cry before supper. Yeah. This is not a healthy relationship. No, it really isn't. And those are very strange roles. Very strange. And very strange. and some of them point to like well-known suspicions. Like I can see that like not walking on the same side of the street as a hospital. Like that's probably a, a suspicion or a superstition that a lot of people right. Right. Um, are concerned with. But you mentioned this idea that Jennifer doesn't want Elizabeth to have fun with anybody else. Yeah. And I think this brings us to Cynthia's birthday party. And that was a scene that I found really fascinating because Elizabeth is invited to Cynthia's birthday. And of course, her mom is all excited that she's going to go. She like pretty much forces her to go. She's getting nervous about Elizabeth's social development, which is something that Elizabeth is aware of, which I thought was interesting. Like the fact yeah. that she knows her parents are talking about the fact that she doesn't have a lot of friends and she kind of like sees that that's something that they're concerned about, concerned yeah. about. So she goes to this birthday party and at first she's kind of thinking of herself as a spy. Like she's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to see what these girls are like. But then she she finds that there are so many things that she can't actually do at the party because of Jennifer's rules. So she can't play pin the tail on the donkey because okay. of the rule about pins. She can't play musical chairs. She can't eat cake because Jennifer told her not to. She is just generally unhappy because her hair is a mess. Like she is really embarrassed about the way her hair looks because she hasn't been allowed to cut it. And she's very self-conscious. Her dress is a hand-me-down. So she's just like uncomfortable in her body. And she just is like, it, she's like bugging out a little bit because I feel like she's so aware of everything that she's doing because she doesn't want to break any rules. And at the same time, she's getting a little bit resentful of Jennifer. And she kind of like wants to break the rules at the same time. But she also wants to become a witch. <laughs> and I like my heart broke for her. But I was, I was so mad at Jennifer. I was too, because I, I, all I kept thinking is Jennifer literally does not want her to have fun at this party, because if she does have fun and these girls accept her, then she might drop Jennifer as a friend. And I think that all of those things, that all of those rules were literally just Jennifer protecting her, her friend, her one friend from leaving her. So, you know, it was, it was sad on both, from both sides, you know, Elizabeth is, is just having a miserable time with girls who probably would have seen Elizabeth in a different light if she had gone and participated and had fun. Like, I feel like her, her dynamic with Cynthia had the potential to change at that party, but it didn't because Jennifer prevented it because she was insecure about losing her one friend. And I think that that's where, like, we, we see Jennifer's power dynamic all of this time 
And at that point, at that party, is when I saw the power sort of crumble a little bit. And we could see Jennifer who for, for who she really is. It's just an, also an insecure little girl wanting to hold on to the one friend that she has. So they both had that dynamic. They both were trying desperately to hold on to that friendship. So Cynthia's the problem here. No, <laughs> she really wasn't. Like, I think that the, the dynamic would have changed if, if Elizabeth had been able to fully participate in that party. Because it sounded like she wanted to, even though she was resentful about having to go. Her mom made her. Once she got there, I think that she would have enjoyed herself. Yeah, I didn't write them down. But if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of moments at the party where it seemed like Elizabeth was like, oh, there were a couple of like moments she had with the girls where she was like, oh, like they thought that Mm -hmm. I was funny. Like they laughed at my joke. We had a good time in this moment. So yeah, I think that um, the party could have been a turning point for good for Elizabeth's sort of overall quality of life and like happiness at school. And she was so tied up in these rules that Jennifer has given her that she's not able to enjoy it. And she actually leaves the party almost feeling more validated. She she sort of walks away saying, so I decided instead to enjoy being odd. And I did. And I think this brings us to a trope that there's like a lot of talk about in the literary world and also in the world of TV and movies, but this idea of like, not like other girls. Right. And I've talked about this with a lot of people in the SSR community, a lot of guests, and I think people have strong feelings about it in all kinds of directions. And I think for me, like, and I'm anxious to hear what you think, Trish, it's like, I'm so happy that she walked away from that party feeling like she was comfortable and who she is. She's owning the fact that she's different from others. Like she doesn't need to be like everybody else. But I think there's also always the danger of leaning so hard on this, like not like other girls thing that you rob yourself of the opportunity to connect with more people. And you're also like setting yourself up in opposition to like pretty much all other girls, which is not healthy either. What do you think? Right. Well, you know, I, Having worked in the bookstore and read a lot of middle grade stories, it seems like middle grade is always celebrating the odd girl, you know, like they all have strange names, you know, Opal Baloney and Star Girl. <laughs> in the, yeah, and Star Girl and the one girl, I loved the book, Savvy, but the girl in there, her name was Mississippi. And they called her Mibs. And I'm like, only in middle grade do we find these girls with like grandma names who have like no friends and they do something wonderful and magical and they go from being like nobodies to being somebodies. And so it is a trope in middle grade more so than others. But yes, there are a lot of not like other girls in middle grade fiction. Do you enjoy it as a trope? Well, it makes me wonder if when you're in that complicated time, it's a time to be reading about a girl who doesn't feel comfortable in her own skin becoming comfortable mm-hmm. so it is it's a it's a complicated thing like i feel like we see it so often that it maybe stops being magical but maybe not maybe like girls in that age group are just hungry for like okay i'm not alone i'm not the only person who feels like i don't have any friends or i'm different you know, so I don't know. It's a complicated thing for me. I don't know that I have a, a good answer. Like, I think that it's necessary or we wouldn't see it so much. It might be a trope that we, it's a trope for a reason. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very complicated. I think sometimes it works really well. I think you're right. I think maybe for middle grade, it's that it's the best. In YA, I'm not a fan of it, period. I 
Yes. Think, I just don't think, you know, when you are a teenager, setting yourself up against everyone else isn't necessarily healthy. But when you're a middle grader and you're really going through those, those really complicated puberty moments and you're trying to figure out who you are, maybe understanding that it's okay to be different is a good message. So I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, I actually think this might be the first middle grade book we've talked about where not like other girls has come up, at least explicitly. Like, I think there are probably books that we talked about early on in the podcast where that was at play, but it just wasn't something that I was aware of as much at that point. So I think this is the first time we're touching on it with respect to a middle grade book. And I actually, I think I might be, I think you might have sold me. I think middle grade, it works. And maybe YA is when I start to have a negative reaction to it. But it's definitely something that we see at work in this book. Jennifer, I'm going to I'm going to say it again because I feel like I need to see if I can <laughs> let it roll off my tongue again. Jennifer Hectate, Macbeth, William McKinley and me, Elizabeth. I didn't say it as smoothly that time, but that's okay. So, we have now been working toward this climax moment in the book because Jennifer has told Elizabeth that they're going to make a flying ointment which will give them the power to fly and if Elizabeth successfully helps Jennifer do this and she will no longer be a journeyman witch and she will be like a full-blown witch herself. So they've been collecting all of these like random ingredients. They've been talking about it throughout the story. I had to just call out the fact that at one point, Jennifer talks about ayahuasca (laughs) and adding ayahuasca to the potion, which in the 90s, when I read this book or would have read this book as a kid, I would have been like, oh, I don't even know what this word is. But now ayahuasca is like a thing that people talk about, like going on these ayahuasca journeys and like having these psychedelic experiences. And I was like, oh, like, I'm pretty sure like Chelsea Handler did an episode of her show where she did ayahuasca. Like it's become a sort of a thing that celebrities talk about and are into. So I was like, oh, okay, Yale Konigsberg. (laughs) Where do you get that when you're in fifth grade? Yeah. Which we find out where she gets these things. Yes, we do. But she also has a toad. She gets a toad that they're going to add to the potion. And she explains to Elizabeth, this is like a very important ingredient. It's supposed to be the first thing that you put into the ointment. But of course, they're kids and they bond with the toad. And Elizabeth especially like really bonds with the toad. They name it Hillary Ezra, which is hilarious. It's sort of a competition to see like who can love Hillary Ezra more. They talk about how like they might even like the toad more than they like each other. Like it's a whole (laughs) thing. And at the critical moment when they're actually making the ointment, First of all, Jennifer doesn't add Hillary Ezra to the ointment first, which is important. Right. She saves him for last. And Elizabeth like doesn't really realize until like, the moment, moment before that, that like, oh, right, we're going to have to throw this toad into the ointment. This toad that I love is a casualty of this whole endeavor. And she finally stands up to Jennifer and tells her, no, like you can't do this. And uh, it doesn't really go that well. Um, Jennifer is not happy. She says, you'll never make a proper witch. You still want too many reasons and you are too sentimental. And Elizabeth says, and you, Jennifer, are too hard hearted. You never even hesitated. And Jennifer says, you are dismissed. And then Elizabeth does the worst thing you could possibly do to Jennifer and calls her Jenny. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, that was hilarious. (laughs) And then they lose the toad. The toad just goes like hopping off. And they have a friend breakup. Yes, they do. Which is always sad to read about. Like as 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 happy as I was to see Elizabeth stand up to Jennifer, it, it was sad, especially because Elizabeth was really enjoying having a friend. And she was. 
She was. She's pretty heartbroken. What did you think about that whole scene? Well, I think it was very necessary, though, because I think Jennifer's power and her hold was so strong that Elizabeth needed that moment to say, you know, to like gain any sort of equality in the relationship. And even though it didn't turn out the way at the moment, we don't think it turns out the way that she wanted it. It was necessary to the survival of their friendship. It was really necessary for her to say, wait a minute, this is not right. And this is not cool. And I'm, I don't want you to do it. So I think that it was, it was good. It was like, but it was heartbreaking. So, you know, after all that she's been through and all of those terrible things that she's eaten and making herself miserable at the party, it was like that one last blow that it, it was, it was so painful. And even though she's had her moments where you're like, wow, stop being so mean to other people, you still felt for her. Yeah, she's really sad. She's right back to yeah. where she started. Yeah, as an author, I mean, it's it's a beautiful arc. She's hit her with the worst possible thing. And we all feel terrible at that time. We're, we feel just as bad as Elizabeth. Yeah, we're in it with her. I, or at least I felt like I was in it with her. I was. I totally was. So she has this realization from like looking out outside of her balcony. She realizes by like, you know, picking up on a couple of hints, having talk to Jennifer about plants and ayahuasca and like a couple of other things. She realizes that Jennifer's dad is the caretaker at this estate, which she can see mm -hmm. from the apartment building. She also, and this was a little fuzzier for me. Um, the ending was kind of quick. Like it wrapped up really fast. It did. It was a it little did. abrupt for me, but she realizes that like the Hillary Ezra toad moment was like part of Jennifer's test to Elizabeth like she was trying to and we're supposed to know this because Jennifer did not throw the toad in the ointment first Jennifer made a point to wait to use it until the end of this like mixing process I guess we were supposed to realize like oh Jennifer was waiting to see if Elizabeth would react I don't know I think the whole thing was a little bit fuzzy but it does occur to yeah. it occurs to Elizabeth that that was like part of it and it was sort of supposed to happen that way but why was jennifer so mean to her yeah that's a good question you think at that moment she'd be like oh okay i'm relieved right. that i didn't have through the toad and yay you passed the test now we're actually you're a witch and we're friends you know but i mean it's also possible that jennifer like also realized that she had literally lost the power that the power differential was gone now and she had to be she's not a witch anymore she has to be an actual friend. And so I think that that's it. That's the moment when the magic sort of ends. That's the moment that the spell is is over. You know, the spell is yeah. broken. And so, you know, Elizabeth sees Jennifer who for who she really is. And Jennifer has to stand there and be, she has to be a friend instead of just being the, the head witch in charge. <laughs> the HWIC. <laughs> yeah, and then like Jennifer comes over to Elizabeth's apartment and they kind of just become friends again. Jennifer's like, the whole witch thing wasn't real. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's just be friends. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I, I still go back to that moment where when I realized that Jennifer had othered herself on purpose. Yeah. So it, it was kind of a test. Is this girl my friend? Is she going to be okay as my friend? Is she not going to reject me because of my race? she sort of removed her own race from the picture by making herself a witch. And when the witch spell is broken, then she has to just be herself. And, you know, Elizabeth accepts her 
for who she is outside of her witchiness. And to say, and you know, in 1967, you know, being a white girl in a white community and all the other girls are white, to have a black friend is a step that the black friend might be afraid to, to take. Trust this little white girl to be my friend, or is she just going to be one more person who hates me? And I mean, you know, if this book were in 2021, we might want to know how Jennifer feels about all of these things. We might want to see Jennifer's perspective in a way that we didn't know that we needed in 1967. You know, I think that this book kind of opens a door for white kids, but it doesn't necessarily center the black child's experience in a way that we would we would hope today. Yeah, I think that's very well said. That there's actually room, though, even in 2021 for books that open the door for white kids to have a better understanding. You know, sometimes they do need to read books, you know, from the perspective of a person of color. They need that. They should do it. But there are kids who who maybe are reluctant or they don't know. And and I don't think that white people need to do all the talking. <laughs> but I do think that there are there are there is room for a, a book that opens the door. Yeah. You know, I. I wrote a book that was set in Egypt and I felt really it was a weird situation because I didn't speak from the perspective of a Muslim person but there was Muslim culture Egyptian culture and I was not I'm I'm a white woman so I, when I had kids who would say hey I loved your book I would always point to people of color who had written similar books from a Muslim perspective and said, you should read this book too. If you liked mine, read this. And so it's, yeah. a, it's a good jumping off point, but I don't, you know, I, I think that we can't claim to be the experts of things. Right. But I think for 67, this book was a, a was a good door into, you know, a, a wider world for, for white kids. Yeah. I think that's very well said. And I'd love to know sort of on the whole, I mean, I know you didn't read this when you were a kid, but you, have a knowledge of Yale Coningsburg because of your history as a bookseller. Did this book meet your expectations? Did it exceed them? I thought it was wonderful. Like it, it, it definitely exceeded my expectation. It's so, it's so complicated and fuzzy. And I love that for kids for to, you know, to challenge their thinking and to have them have a discussion like we're having over is Jennifer really mean or is there more to Jennifer? And for her being not the main character, we do actually learn quite a bit about where she is. If we're thinking about it, we do we do see where she is as a as a person. She's scared and she's vulnerable, and so it's easy to wrap yourself in something bigger <laughs> to make yourself more appealing to other people, and so that you are othered for something other than your color. Yeah, it's a very rich story is the word that I would use, especially for like 110 pages, like with illustrations. Yes, it's very, you can dig very deep into this book for such a tiny book. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I appreciate you getting into all of it with me. Um, Other than this book, what have you been reading lately, Trish, that you would recommend to our listeners? Doesn't have to be YA or middle grade. It can be anything that you have really loved. So I have read what some of my favorite books recently, and they're all over the all over the map. J.S. Dewis has written a, um, two books that are sci-fi: The Last Watch and The Exiled Fleet, um, and it's fantastic. I love science fiction, so this one is. It feels very like a little bit Firefly, um, a little bit Star Trek. Just it's very cool. And another one that I've loved, and I'm a huge fan of Norse mythology, is The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornchek. It's it's kind of a, you know how um, Cersei 
kind of takes the role of that, you know, of the villain in, in Greek mythology. So Angraboda is Loki's wife and she's, she is the main character and we get to see her in a, in a more whole and sympathetic light. And, and I love that book so much. Those are two that I'm crazy about. Like I talk about them as often as possible because they're so good. That's awesome. Well, I will include links to those books in the show notes for this episode. And Trish, I'd love if you would tell us a little bit about your latest book, Float Plan, which I will, of course, also include info about in the show notes. But tell listeners what they need to know about it if they have not heard about it before. So Float Plan is the story of a young woman named Anna who um, has lost her, her fiance by suicide. And on the day that they're meant to go sailing through the Caribbean together, an alarm goes off on her phone and he's not there for the journey. So she jumps on the boat and takes off, even though she's not really quite prepared for a trip by herself. And very quickly, she realizes that she's not prepared for the trip by herself. And she enlists the help of a former professional sailor uh, by the name of Keen, who helps her navigate her way, not only through the Caribbean, but through her grief. Well, I have been seeing lots of love for Float Plan around. And so I hope more listeners out there will pick it up. Trish, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today about this book, you taking the time to read it. It was so much fun. And I hope we get the chance to talk again. This was fun. Me too. I love that book so much. And I'm really glad that I read it. Like, I feel like I missed out on something as a child by missing this book. Well, I'm here to help fill those gaps for people. What can I say? Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Trish. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.